The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, August 22nd, and this is The Gist. I'm your host, Alex Rorty, sitting in for Mike Pesca. It was an extraordinary day in American politics on Tuesday. Paul Manafort's conviction and Michael Cohen's plea deal have, as the Washington Post said on its front page this morning, tightened the squeeze on Donald Trump. And not 24 hours later, they're sure to stoke a new round of speculation that Democrats should back outright impeachment. The party is already considering it, right? Of course those voices are going to get louder now. Well, a lot of Democratic leaders and strategists would like these people to know it's a bad idea, even now. And to understand why, you have to understand the central dynamic of this year's elections. Democrats are ready to vote, and Republicans aren't. It's not exactly that simple, but it's close. Poll after poll shows that Democrats, and in particular, its well-educated liberal base, are incredibly excited about the upcoming election. They'll do anything to vote against a president they despise. Meanwhile, the GOP and Trump's base of white, blue-collar voters aren't nearly as ready. Maybe they're disappointed by the results of this administration so far. Maybe it's just something that happens naturally after you win such a big election like the one in 2016. The point is, Democrats have an advantage because they can count on their supporters to turn out, and Republicans can't. Impeachment and the threat of erasing Trump's victory in 2016 could change all that. Just ask most Republicans. They would love nothing more than a few months before Election Day to have a long, heated debate about the merits of impeachment. Maybe some of their voters are unhappy with the way things have gone, but that doesn't mean they want Trump out of office. To be honest, most Democrats have steered clear to the I-word so far at the quiet urging of their party's leaders. Tuesday's news might make that more difficult, but Democratic leaders certainly hope they can keep it out of the headlines, at least for now. What would Democratic leaders want their party to talk about? For that, I point you to a speech Elizabeth Warren gave yesterday morning about corruption in government. Our government systematically favors the rich over the poor, the donor class over the working class, the well-connected over the disconnected. This is deliberate, and we need to call it for what it is, corruption, plain and simple. Now, this was a speech that ostensibly had more to do with the Massachusetts senator's own presidential ambitions. She outlined a proposal that, among other sweeping changes, prohibits lawmakers from becoming lobbyists, and makes presidential candidates disclose their last eight years of tax returns, something that feels more than a little targeted at the man in the White House right now. There is no real question that the Trump era has given us the most nakedly corrupt leadership this nation has seen in our lifetimes. But they are not the cause of the rot. They're just the biggest, stinkiest example of it. There's no better way to impress the body politic than running as an outsider hell-bent on cleaning up Washington. If there's one thing everyone agrees on, in fact, it's that the status quo in D.C. is broken. Corruption, not impeachment, that's the message Democratic leaders want their party to focus on, even if Trump is feeling the squeeze. In today's show, we're going to talk about why you shouldn't take those election prognostications for granted just yet. But first, we're going to talk to Tim Miller, one of the few never-Trumpers left in America, and someone who has a surprising theory about the way the media treats Trump. (music) 
Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphe. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Tim Miller is a former top official with the Jeb Bush and John Huntsman presidential campaigns, and he once ran the GOP's preeminent opposition research group, uh, which is just a formal way of saying he dug up dirt on Democrats. He's also one of the few, the proud, the hashtag never Trump. And right now he's making one of the most provocative but potentially important arguments of the Trump era that the president actually benefits from a media double standard. Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, it's really good to be with you, Alex. And uh, we are increasingly few and proud than ever Trump. <laughs> the, the, the increasingly few. Your numbers seem to dwindle every month. So, Tim, you know, in a May essay uh, on Crooked Media, you wrote, quote, No politician in my lifetime has benefited more from his relationship with the media than President Trump. Can you explain what you meant by that? Sure. Uh, it was basically a rebuttal, one that I think is a rather obvious rebuttal, frankly, to uh, the media is biased against President Trump, that they hate President Trump. My rebuttal to that is that actually the premise of it is untrue, and that not only is the media not biased against Trump, that implicit biases and the way that the news media works Uh, actually work to Trump's favor in a great degree. And so I I guess I just caveat this by saying, obviously, uh, this is not to say that on a personal level, I think members of the media support Donald Trump or voted for him. I think probably exactly the opposite. But it is the nature of the media business and the way that Donald Trump takes advantage of it, making bad faith arguments and um, using the, the tropes that he's very familiar with coming from tabloid New York to his advantage, and um, yeah, we can get into we can get into those in greater detail. Well, that's I mean the important thing I think to know going into this argument is that it is not this sort of traditional left wing versus right wing um, bias that you're talking about. It's no. not as simple as saying, as you said. I mean, you in your view, and, and I don't think many people would really disagree with it that reporters um, didn't vote for Trump, that they might be biased, maybe particularly on social issues, more and have more of a liberal disposition. But you're arguing something very different. You're not saying don't put that aside for a second. There's something more important going on here, and what's going on is that. Things that Trump does and says that would be incredible stories in any other administration, the kind of thing that would dominate coverage for weeks, if not months, if not define a presidency, instead goes almost without mention now. Talk, talk more about that. Yeah, and uh, the analogy that I use, I forget if you're a hockey guy or not, Alex, but um, you know my childhood 1990s New Jersey Devils, right? And they, they basically used this <laughs> essentially a strategy of, on defense, we're going to penalize the opponent on every play, and we're going to dare the refs to call it. And you know, what ends up happening is that the uh, refereeing works out in their favor. Because by human nature, if you're a referee, and, and this isn't a pure analogy, journalists aren't necessarily referees, but by human nature, you you don't want to seem biased, right? So you don't want to blow the whistle on you know every time down the ice against the Devils, and so you let a few go by. You even blow the whistle. Or we, call, or we blow the whistle on the, on the other team, right? Yeah, exactly. yeah. You blow the whistle on the other team a couple times, and to try to demonstrate that you're being even-handed. So I, I think this kind of 
human nature, the the desire to feel neutral is the first thing that that Trump takes advantage of. And I think it's the most acute, but I, I think there are others as well, biased towards recency. You know, news is news. What happened just today, right before we got on the call, the president announced that John Brennan, you know, was having his national security clearance revoked. Obviously, this is news, but immediately the cable news networks turned to it almost exclusively. And in a moment of self-awareness, I was just watching Brooke Baldwin, who, who said, look at us now. The president makes this announcement and now we're talking about something else. And I, this isn't to say that they should completely ignore it, but there needs to be it needs to be put into the context of you know, all of the broader egregious offenses of the Trump era. And so those two, I think, are the two major ways that, that Trump takes advantage of the media, though there, there are some others as well. Well, you know, and, and I want to really dive into some of that media criticism and maybe push back on that a little bit, but just to flesh sure. this out, I mean, because in, in the story you wrote, I mean, you made, the, I think, the rather extraordinary claim that Mitt Romney's infamous gaffe in 2012, when he made the 47% comment, that if Trump were to say something like that, Today, it might barely get mentioned in, in, in the media. I think that's a completely unexceptional claim. This, this comment, as you know, we, we all lived through it, basically carried the day in the news for weeks. And, and I, would, I would argue that if President Trump's next uh, rally, whenever it is, when he's upstate New York or in West Virginia in the coming weeks, if he said that exact same thing, it would be about the 17th most noteworthy thing that he says in his speeches. Uh, you know, I mean, if you actually subject yourself to watching his hour-long, rambling, race-baiting rallies, I, I, it, wouldn't even, it wouldn't even be noteworthy. You know, he makes up fake characters. You know how Cory Booker, right, has been dogged by this, how he made up uh, um, T-Bone or whatever in, in his speeches in New Jersey. This was a main story. Trump in every single speech, makes up fake people. He talks about imaginary mayors on the border who, who support the wall, you know, people in cities where the mayor actually opposes the wall. That, that's not even news. In every speech, he still talks about Mexico paying for the wall. This is a lie on its face. And at this point, the um, news media basically just like lets that you know, rub off their back and they don't talk about it anymore. You know, it'd be as if Romney had just continued over and over again making the 47% remark to the point where people were like, oh, you know, we're sick of it, so we're not going to cover it anymore. Uh, I, there, there are just a lot of examples of this, and I know that it's a challenge, and it's, it's you know, sometimes tough to pick on your, your colleagues in the fourth estate, but uh, I think it requires, you know, maybe some, <laughs> some more creative thinking about how to, how to handle these guys. Well, that, and that's what I want to talk about now. Um, is really kind of to, to dive into some of this media criticism and get some of your maybe what some of your recommendations are for this. But let me let me just start by this with a little bit of pushback. You know, when you when you talk about reporters having to to react with alarm or at least highlight a lot of the comments that he makes um, that he makes all the time. To your point, I mean, he makes he says something that's racially charged or just outright racist in a lot of his speeches. What? though, do reporters do when it's not just them, but it's the public that looks at that and just kind of shrugs and moves on? Um, you know, that, that there might be Trump fatigue in the press corps, but that that is also present in, in just everyday voters. You know, maybe some people would tune out the New York Times if they had a headline that said Trump lies every day. But the reality is Trump lies every day. 
So that's that's just it. That's the news. You know, people criticize on the right. You know, I get pushback from my friends, and they say, Stud, you know, studies say that eighty-five percent of the coverage of Trump is negative already." I said, "Well, if he is lying in a hundred percent of his speeches, then one hundred percent of the coverage needs to be negative." That's just the way, you know, how you have to deal with somebody like this. And, you know, I think that, well, he doesn't get enough credit for this or that. I, I just totally reject that. I, I think that reporters are dying to give him credit for things. Anytime that he does a speech where he, he doesn't, you know, say anything racist or offensive, you know, he gets praised about how presidential it is. So I understand that there is no perfect solution. But I, I don't think we can get to a point where Trump goes out and gives a speech and, and incites you know, racial animus against minority groups and gives 20 to 25 provably false lies and that the New York Times, the next day after that speech, puts it on page 17 with the headline, you know, Trump rallies for Kevin Kramer in North Dakota. Because that's what happens now. Well, that, and, and look, you... you kind of answer part of this question already, but sure. you know, my question to you is what are the broad changes that you think the media should take, um, should undertake when it comes to covering Trump? Sure. You guys criticize me all the time on campaigns for good reason. We, I lost a bunch of campaigns, so I, I'm happy to put the shoe on the other foot this time. Here's what a reporter does. One right. is you ask them about things that, that she does not have prepared talking points for. I, I thought the best question that I've seen recently in the um, in the briefing room was by CBS correspondent Jackie Alamany asked Sarah Sanders, completely apropos of nothing that was in the news that day, if she still stands by the statement that all 19 women who have accused Donald Trump of sexual assault are liars. And Sarah was caught off guard by that question because she wasn't preparing, you know, her lie of the day around the issue of sexual assault because it wasn't in the news. And she just blurted out, yes, of course, we stand by that statement. That led the news that night on all the stations that this this news story that was very, very important in October of 2016 that everybody stopped talking about for some reason, you know, now was thrust back into the news. So I think this, again, goes to recency. You can't ask these people what they think or what their plans are or what they have to say about something because their answers are invariably going to be bullshit, complete and utter bullshit. They do not have any interest in answering on, on the merits of the question. And so you have to be detailed. I, on Trump, I go back to Chris Matthews with him on abortion. Again, that wasn't in the news that day. He hadn't planned his talking points. And Matthews asked him 13 straight times, what is the punishment that you support for abortion? And eventually Trump was like, yeah, yeah, sure. I, I support criminalizing women for abortion. Do you believe, no, but, in, but you're, do you believe you're, in punishment for abortion? Yes or no? Is a principle. Uh, the answer is that there has to be some form of punishment. For the woman? Yeah, there has to be some form. 10 no, cents, 10 you, years. I don't what? know. That I don't know. That was massive news and an important discovery. So I, I want to ask then, Tim, thinking broadly about politics, yeah. where do we go from here? You know, because is this something that is, is, is Trump just uh, irrevocably broken uh, the rules, the guidebook here for reporters, and this is just the way it's going to be from now on for Democrats and Republicans? Or is, is there going to be a regression to what we would consider normal? I don't think that um, he's completely broken it, which is why I go back to the fact that, that Trump has benefited most from from the media out of anybody. Again, it goes back uh, through his whole life, and it's because he has a unique shamelessness. Uh, he just doesn't care. 
his unique, you know, willingness to do the '90s devil strategy of fouling on every play is hard to is hard to replicate. And I think that you'll be hearing a lot of complaints in the 2020 Democratic primary, well deserved, from Flax and from campaign managers on the left who say. I'm getting treated by a different standard because they are, you know, because there will be Washington Post exposés on something that Cory Booker did that would be the 190th most outrageous thing Trump does in any given week. But it's going to be the most outrageous thing Cory Booker has done. And I think that it's going to damage them. And there will be a little bit of inurement to this. I think that maybe some of what we've seen in the past uh, around gaffes might not have as big of an impact, but it's not going to change the media. The last thing I'll say on this point is that the other big bias that Trump has in his favor is towards ratings. Media loves the clicks. That's why they changed the topic when he says something new and outrageous uh, rather than going back to policy. And the media will continue to love the clicks that when, when there's a gaffe, or a sex scandal or something else from from other candidates in the future, you know, it will drive clicks. And if there isn't a Donald Trump to block out the sun, it's what people will talk about and it will it will affect them. So I, I think that there will be in some level a tack back towards normal, if not, <laughs> not ever completely normal again. Tim, uh, thank you so much. It was good to, to talk to you in a civil way as opposed to what our relationship has been in the past, which has been you screaming at me for bad stories that I've written about Republican candidates. You support. This was a lot better than that. Hey, man. Happy to do it. And now, the spiel. You know Nate Silver, right? He's a statistics wizard over at the politics website 538, the guy who accurately predicted how the states would break between Romney and Obama in the 2012 presidential election. Yeah, he got all 50 right. And last week, he revealed his latest electoral prognostication. His estimates are that Democrats have a three in four chance of retaking the House in November. Pretty good, right? Of course, that figure is actually more likely to provoke anxiety than optimism in Democrats. Because many of them will remember that in 2016, the 538 analyst also said the odds favored Hillary Clinton. What did he peg Clinton's odds at again? Uh, He also, during the 2016 election, had 7 out of 10 that Hillary Clinton would win, by the way. Oh yeah, about 75%. Silver tweeted about that coincidence, writing, So hopefully everyone's learned their lesson and won't mistake that for a sure thing. He added a trio of laughing till they cry emojis for good measure. Now, all this talk about how Americans will vote in November got me wondering again about what they think of the man in the White House. After all, midterm elections are basically referendums on the president, even if their name isn't on the ballot. Trump is unpopular. No president in the modern age, in fact, has been so poorly regarded. His approval rating has slipped between the high 30s and low 40s through most of his presidency, while a Quinnipiac University poll this month found only 31 percent of voters like Trump as a person. Republican officials are pretty devoted to supporting the president these days, but even many of them waffle, for example, when asked if Trump should be considered a role model for kids. But it's not as if he was popular during his scandal-filled presidential campaign. A November Gallup poll from that year showed only 36% of adults held a favorable view of him. And yet, he still won the Electoral College. Trump's victory led to a justifiable round of speculation in the media that there must be something about his appeal that we don't understand that maybe we can't even quantify. 
NBC political correspondent Steve Kornacki had the best essay on this, writing last year that two months before the election, a poll showed 62% of voters didn't think Trump was even qualified to be president. In 2016, the numbers didn't mean quite what we thought they did, Kornacki wrote, adding that the episode should serve as a cautionary tale for political journalists now. I think about what Kornacki wrote often because I've taped a portion of that essay to the wall of my newsroom desk here in Washington. I, a professional political reporter in Washington, D.C., got just about everything wrong with the last presidential election. I spent months writing about what a drag Trump was on down-ballot GOP candidates, how they were all trying to separate themselves from their party's ostensible leader, and how even the most optimistic Republicans were predicting doom by November. I wasn't alone, of course. Most everyone in the mainstream media got it wrong, as you know. But frankly, so did the political insiders in Washington. I should know because I talked with a dozen of them in the days leading up to the election. They all said Trump would lose. Some even suggested the margin of defeat would be much larger than the polls showed. So when I think about this, believe me, it's personal. Nobody wants to get it wrong once. Getting it wrong twice is just embarrassing. So what if there really is something we can't measure with Trump to this day? A secret hold he has on his voters, those diehards you read so much about sitting in diners and working in coal fields across America, that gives him more strength than his poll numbers suggest. Sure, people say they dislike his tweets and the people he picks to run his cabinet, but deep down, they think America needs an uncouth Fulgarian to, quote, get things done. Or maybe those diehards don't want to talk to pollsters, but they'll sure vote on Election Day. It's not a wild theory. Trump is an unconventional president, maybe the most unconventional in American history. And if we don't know exactly how voters feel about his behavior, it's because there's no precedent for it. Sure, it seems suicidal, but again, this is a man whose campaign was pronounced dead no fewer than a half dozen times during the presidential race. Well, the theory gets a major test in November. By every historical marker we have, the GOP should be bracing for a bloodbath. That's what happens to parties that control the White House in midterms. It's what happens when polls show the incumbent president has a low approval rating And it's especially what happens when a bunch of incumbents retire instead of facing re-election, as many Republicans have this year. The slate of special elections have been even more damning for the GOP. Remember Connor Lamb? He was the Democratic House candidate who won a squeaker of a special election this March in a once deeply Republican suburban Pittsburgh seat. If Democrats could win in a place like that, the thinking goes, there's no reason the party couldn't win 30 or 40 seats in November. Democrats nearly repeated the feat a few weeks ago during a special election in Ohio. Yes, gerrymandering and other factors will make things tough for Democrats. And the Senate, where Democrats are defending seats in 10 states Trump won in 2016, is in a different political universe altogether. But most of the Democratic pollsters I talk to lately, generally not a very optimistic bunch, say they see a lot of 2006 in their recent polls, the last year Democrats took a House majority. The old rules, then, say Democrats should win big. But the more and more I think about it, the more I wonder. Do the old rules apply to Trump and his Republican Party? They haven't in the past. That's what this election is all about. But it's not a question even Nate Silver can answer. Not yet, at least. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Umperu, Deperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>